First, let me say today is part five in a five-part series called Minnesota Ice. And where that title came from is from my sister, Sarah, who works with people from all around the country. And she said the people she works with, they say Minnesota's got a reputation for being really, really nice, but it's hard to break in. Really, really nice and hard to break in. And I tested that off a couple of people. One of our families who came here from Boston, some of our newest members, I saw him down at the fitness center and I was talking to him. And I said, was that your experience? I was like, yeah, yeah, that's our experience. I talked to Dan about this when he came from New Jersey. If it felt like that, he said, yeah, it, it's like that. So we decided to have this series where we're going to say, let's not, let's not be that. Let's not just be Minnesota nice. Let's have real biblical hospitality. And one of the tools that we've referred to, um, we've actually have a slip that looks like this in your bulletin. We have these magnets for one more week out there at the lobby for you to take home and to, and to use. What this little tool was is if this is our home, we said in week two of the series, let's get to know the neighbors around us. And then we said we could also use this for the teams that we're on to get to know the people around us. Dan talked last week with our, with our young people. Let's try to get nine folks, little, uh, younger people that, that we get to know here to make feel welcome. So the plan then, the direction we were going to go with this message here today, was to say, now let's talk about what it means collectively as a church. How do we go beyond just being Minnesota nice? How do we truly welcome people into this community? How do we extend real biblical hospitality? That was the, the, the direction we were going to talk about. But something happened two weeks ago. And I want to tell you about this. It's a conversation that I had with a young man named Tyler. And I asked Tyler if I could share about our conversation. He said, sure, you bet. I first met Tyler when he was in junior high, and he was a sharp kid. He's now a sharp adult, but man, I remember at the time him being a sharp kid. He was also one of the most positive, optimistic people you'd ever meet. But one of the things I remember distinctly about Tyler, he was very outspoken with his Christian faith, very outspoken. In fact, one of the things he tried to do as best he could was to have intelligent discussions with people who disagreed and say, here's why Christianity makes sense, and here's why Christianity is the way to go. Well, we lost touch for a number of years, and we reconnected on Monday, last Monday, for lunch. And wow, Tyler has accomplished a lot. By the age of 33 now, he's already launched several companies. He's traveled all around the world, and his eyes lit up in particular when he talked about this organization that he's a part of. He's an entrepreneur, and he's a part of this uh, entrepreneur organization called EO. And as he's sharing about this thing with all his passion, he described something that sounds an awful lot like the church that Jesus cast a vision for. EO is a global network. It's a global network of people who share a similar passion. It's a group that includes both men and women, younger and older. They gather together regularly, sometimes in large groups, sometimes in small groups, and sometimes one-on-one. And when they gather together, they take the phones out, they turn them off, they put them in the center of the table so they can be fully engaged in the moment with one another. They are champions for personal growth and development. They're committed to making an impact on the world around them. And if you travel, he said, if you travel, and they're in like 60 countries around the world, if you're in their country and you call them up, they will welcome you in. From what Tyler described, that organization exhibits many of the characteristics that we've been talking about in this series. And Tyler asked me as he was sharing these things, he said, why is it when I'm with these groups, why is it when I go around the world 
that Christianity comes up so few times. And here's the perspective that now he was asking that question from. He was now asking that question from someone who faith no longer plays the role it once did. He no longer advocates for the Christian faith. He's not against it, but he no longer advocates for it. He no longer um, has a central, I should say this, faith never has that, doesn't have that central role in his life that it once did. And that conversation convicted me to say, we got to go deeper than I was planning to go. We got to go deeper than I originally planned to go. It is a win to welcome people well. It is a win. It's a win. But here's the deeper question that I want to wrestle with today. And there's a place to write this on your green insert. We use that like an outline here. Here's, the, here's where I want to go today. Here's where I want to wrestle with. I want to wrestle with this. What is the church of Jesus Christ uniquely positioned to welcome people into? That's where I want to take us today. What is the church of Jesus Christ uniquely positioned to welcome people into? May I present to you for your consideration that the church of Jesus Christ is uniquely positioned to welcome people into a community that is like others, but also unlike others. There's a place to write this in your notes too. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to join his family. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to join his family. I was out running this week, if you can call it that, and I came across Sue. Sue is somebody that I've referenced before. Every once in a while, if I can get up and get out of bed early enough, she'll be out there walking her big dog, Maddie. And Sue's the one of whom I have said uh, one time before I knew her, I was, she was always so positive. She's always so cheery, always so optimistic. And I said, Sue, where does that come from? And she goes, oh, it's Jesus, she says. It's Jesus. So this week, as I was struggling through this morning run, I saw Sue, and she said, as I'm struggling through this morning run, she says, oh, keep it up. You're looking strong. <laughs> And I said, Sue, you are so encouraging. I said, you remind me of this guy I know. And she goes, oh, Jesus, I like him, she says. I like him. There is a fellowship that we have with other believers, or at least that we should have with other believers, that has many of the attributes of a friendly neighborhood or a great team or a great organization, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there there. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open with me here to Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. Each and every week, we keep a stack right there at that table in the back. We encourage you to take one home as a gift to you. Now, before we dive into this little piece here, I want to say this. I want to say that the Bible is a very honest book, a very honest book. And if you look at all of the accounts of this section that we're going to look at right now, you'll find that at least in one of those accounts, it gives us a little of the backstory about this account. And the backstory that it gives is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers were about to have an intervention with Jesus. They thought Jesus had gone crazy, and they were going to bring him back to his senses. That's the context for this passage that we're about to look at right now. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 or 50. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. 
But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and sister. My brother and sister and mother. All right, let's talk about this a little bit. Back in the day, back in the day when this was written, there was nothing shocking here. There was nothing shocking about someone who is presenting themselves as their master to say, hey, do the will of my father in heaven. You're going to find language like this in the Bible from cover to cover. I'm reading Exodus right now at night. And if you haven't read Exodus before, or if you haven't read it in a while, go back and scan through it. And there's a whole lot there about here's my laws, obey them. We're going to be quoting from a a passage from the Gospel of John in the section of the Bible we call the New Testament. If you haven't read chapters 13 through 17 for a while, or if you've never read them before, read through them. And look how many times Jesus says something to the effect of, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Again, back in the day, there's nothing shocking about this. There's nothing shocking about God's expecting obedience from mortals. You earned their favor or you paid the price for disobedience. Jesus didn't follow that simple script. Take a look at this. This comes from 2 Peter 3, verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and what? Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everyone expected that a God would be revered as Lord, but Savior, that peace blew people away. Gods didn't do that. Gods didn't pay the price for human disobedience. Christians believe that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior, both of those things. And since we have some kids with us today, I want to illustrate this. I want to illustrate this, all right? I have up here on this table, this picnic table, the makings for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I have the makings for what? A peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, if I take this single piece of bread and I take peanut butter, just peanut butter, and I spread peanut butter all over this single piece of bread. Do I have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? No, you guys are so smart. I got peanut butter bread. And if I fold it in half, I got a peanut butter sandwich. I don't have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You guys are so smart. Let's try this with jelly. All right. I have up here another piece of bread. If I take this piece of bread and I pour jelly all over it, do I have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? No, what if I put extra jelly on it? No, I got an extra jelly sandwich if I fold it over. Otherwise, I just have jelly bread. You see how this works? So if this only has jelly on it, is this a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? No. If this only has peanut butter on it, is it a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? No. All right, kids. You're two for two. See if you can go three for three. Is it Christianity if we don't have Jesus as Lord and Savior? That one's a little tricky, right? But the adults, the answer is no. It's both. It's Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Lord. And there are those on the outside, as we talk this way, they believe we need an intervention. We need an intervention. 
And here's why. If we could put this up on the screen. This is something that I've been noodling with now for the last probably about 24 hours. It'd be interesting to really drill into this someday. In an age when lordship is considered unloving, the notion of a savior seems silly. The worldview that, we've been, that has been growing in popularity for quite some time, not just here in the United States, but around the world, is that a loving God wouldn't say no when we think he should say yes. And a loving God certainly wouldn't exclude anybody from his family. Now, here's the thing. That sounds so good on the surface. That sounds like the kind of God that we would want. But consider going down that path logically even a few steps and think about how that would not be a wonderful world. Let's take God out of the equation for just a minute. Imagine there's a great king, a great king, a great Lord, if you will. He's good. He's just. He's wise. He's perfect. You couldn't ask for a better Lord. If someone, oh, I got to put this in there too. Imagine if his laws correctly understood and applied as he intended. Imagine if those laws brought life and justice and dignity for all. Now imagine if someone were to reject those laws and do whatever they thought was best for them, if they did things that hurt others and exploited others, if they took things that weren't theirs, if they acted in ways that were corrupt and evil, should that king just look the other way? No. A good king would not look the other way when there's evil in his kingdom. A good king just can't, a good lord just can't ignore evil and still be considered a good lord. Don't we all long to be in a community where people have accountability for their actions, where goodness is rewarded and evil is punished. Of course we do. And now, let's go down that path just a few more yards. Imagine if you lived in that kingdom where that king was perfect and his laws were perfect and all of that. And imagine in that kingdom, there's no hope if you fall short of those laws. No hope if you fail at some point. No hope if you were going the wrong way, you realize this is the wrong way and you want to turn back to those laws. Imagine if there's no hope. Isn't that a kingdom without a savior? Don't we all long for a savior who can save us from ourselves and save us from our transgressions? What does this have to do with welcoming people into the family? The family that we're inviting people into is the family that we long to be part of most. It's a family with a good father whose ways are higher than ours, who guides us with goodness and wisdom and justice beyond our own. And it's a family with a gracious father who made a way for those who fall short so that we could be forgiven and restored and here's the thing about the Lord and Savior sandwich. It is not just to be savored. It's to be shared. It's not just to be savored. It's to be shared. And that brings us to the next thing I want to highlight in your notes. Families do the dishes. Guests leave dirty dishes behind. 
One of the ways you should be able to tell the families from the guests, should, is that families do the dishes. Guests leave dirty dishes behind. When I met with Tyler, he talked about this huge church he visited in Chicago. And he was impressed because now by this point in his life, he was looking things more through the lens of an entrepreneur, more through the lens of a, of a business guy. And he really appreciated how this church, they were ready for them. They had exceptional marketing and materials. Their customer service, their customer experience was off the charts. And that part of the conversation challenged me too. Because of course we should be doing those things. Of course we should pursue excellence. And we do our best to do that here. Excellence honors God and inspires people. And as we pursue excellence, as we strive to offer our guests our best, we got to be careful that we don't give the wrong impression. You can attend services every Sunday and not experience church. Can I get an amen? You can attend services every single Sunday and not experience church. Jesus as he was laying the foundation for all this, Jesus went beyond washing dishes. On the night of his betrayal, what did he wash? His disciples' feet. And then he said this, and I quote, he said, I have given you an example that you should also go and do as I have done to you. And they did. Jesus' disciples did not present faith as a program to be attended. This was a family that they were inviting others into. And one of the things that would be interesting to research, I want to have this conversation. I'm getting together with Tyler in another uh, two weeks. This will be interesting to research this. What is the debt that modern business people, modern entrepreneurs, what is the debt we owe to Jesus and his followers that is now so much the air that we breathe that we don't recognize what it was like before Jesus and how revolutionary he was and the revolution that his disciples brought about. There's a reason why his birth divides history in two. It is hard to overstate the impact that the Jesus movement had on our world. Far from being a weekly gathering that they attended, followers of Jesus, they transformed the very fabric of society, not just in Jerusalem or even Judea, but to the ends of the earth. I'm not aware of any movement in history that's had a greater impact on women's rights or education for all or compassion for the marginalized or health care or governance where our leaders don't act like gods but are accountable to the self-evident truth that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The list is endless. Where would we be if it weren't for the people who took what they experienced in the upper room and they welcomed people into a family where Jesus was revered as Savior and as Lord. On that same night that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said these words. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And he didn't stop there. He chose, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And deep down, we long for this. We hunger for a life that matters. One of the things that was hard for Tyler right after high school was his experience during his freshman year of college. 
Tyler purposely chose a Christian college with a great reputation with the expectation that that Christian college would be a place where he would be inspired and he would be stretched and he would be challenged by brothers and sisters in Christ who are going after God too. Instead, he encountered classmates who had never written a paper more than two pages long. He wound up on what he called the party floor in his dorm with a bunch of knuckleheads who spent more time with their Xbox than they did in the Word. And in contrast to that, in contrast to what he experienced in college, at this Christian college, he said, Chris, with these guys that I'm a part of, and men and women that I'm a part of with EO, he says, why is it that they will commit to donating weeks and sometimes months to travel around the world, find a place that has a need, and try to help make things better? Why is it? Among these people who I don't hear Jesus' name mentioned, why is it that I see it there? When the Game of Thrones wrapped up, someone started a petition that they should do season eight over. (laughs) And something like 800,000 people signed that petition. How is that even a thing? I'm going to get serious here for a second. When the equivalent of 100 jetliners filled with kids crashes every day and kids die from preventable causes based on their poverty, how is that a thing? 26,000 kids today, tomorrow, the next day, the day after. 10 million a year. How is that a thing? How is it a thing that Tyler would purposely choose a college that claims to exist. I, I Googled this morning or last night. I Googled what, what the mission statement was of his college. Here's the mission statement. Quote, to serve Jesus Christ and advance his kingdom through programs that educate the whole person to build the church and benefit society worldwide, end quote. How is it a thing that at that school, the boys on his floor at that institution invested more of their time entertaining themselves with parties and pixels than they did doing justice, loving mercy, and learning what it means at a collegiate level now, beyond a two-page paper level, at a collegiate level, what it means to walk humbly with their God. And here's the thing. I want to to represent Tyler correctly here because this young man, as he's doing it, there was none of that bitterness. There was none of that cynicism. There was none of that bite that you get so often. He was just telling his story. In fact, one of the things he said, he said this. He said, hey, I realized when I went to that college, these were just my expectations. These were just my expectations. That is a very self-aware thing to say. And those were fair expectations. Were they not? Can I get an amen to that? Please write this down. This is central. This is central to becoming the kind of community that we are called to welcome people into. He chose us to. One oh. He chose us to. The God of all creation, if the Bible is correct, and I believe it is, the God of all creation chose you, and he chose you to. He chose you to be his disciple. He chose you to bear fruit. He chose us 
to go beyond Minnesota nice. He chose us to welcome our neighbors and our classmates and our coworkers and our friends and even our enemies into a community where Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and Savior. And that brings us to the final blank in today's outline. Every disciple of Jesus is on the welcome team. Every disciple of Jesus is on the welcome team. Some of you are on the obvious welcome team, welcome team, and you are crushing it. Great work. We just had a new members class last weekend. Several people commented. They said, thank you. This is a place where we felt so welcome. And I just met with the Shoreview Community Center a couple weeks ago. They said, you guys blow us away. How We see a lot of groups coming through here, but each and every week, you guys, you, you're ready for your guests, and you have those cookies, and you have the coffee, and you have all these bulletins, all this kind of stuff set out. Thank you. But I'm talking about the broader definition here of welcome team. Those of you who welcome our kids are on the welcome team when each and every one of our kids is known for who they are as an individual. That's part of our welcome team and pouring yourself into those kids. Those of you who stepped up to be part of our teen ministry and you care for our teenagers and we're trying to provide that safe place where people can come and they can be themselves and they can ask those questions and we can challenge to go beyond two-page paper Christianity. And we try our best to model what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Thank you. For those who are part of worship bands and tech teams, that's part of the welcome team. For those who plan special events and game nights, fun after 40, those types of things. For those who set out the cross in the Bible. For those who are leading small churches. For those who help when people are grieving. For those who lend a listening ear when people need one. For those who join in celebration in those moments. And for those who serve here in leadership. Thanks to all of you who've moved beyond leaving the dirty dishes in the sink, put a servant towel around your arm and said, let me help be part of this. Welcome, team. And if you haven't taken that step yet, we welcome you on board. We got that sheet in your bulletin. You can check there, that one that says summer uh, test drive. Take your connection card, say, hey, give me a call. We'd love to welcome you on to one of these teams. The world needs to see Jesus. One of the things Jesus did is he said, as you've seen me do, do for others. When people do get to see Jesus, the real Jesus, it can be a game changer, even for entrepreneurs. I want to give you an example of that, a real true story. This true story is validated in four different first century sources. We know them today as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can find the account of this person in all four of them. And the person's name is Mary, and she's called Mary Magdalene. Here's one of the places you can find her account in the Bible. This is from Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might go and anoint, and they're referring there to Jesus after his death. And when I was a kid, I would see that Mary Magdalene, I'm like, oh, that must be your last name. One of the sources I consulted this week said, well, she was called Mary Magdalene probably because she was from a town called Magdala. It's a real place. In fact, one of the things I encourage you to do as you fact check me is to to Google Magdala stone. It's a pretty fascinating object. It has the earliest carving of a menorah ever discovered outside of Jerusalem. It was found in that village in the, in the, the, um, as they've excavated. 
I believe the oldest synagogue in Galilee can be found there too. It's a real place. Here's where it fell on the map. If you look up at the top there, there's a Sea of Galilee, and that's where Magdala was. And then we also circled Jerusalem. We circled Jerusalem because that's where that verse that we just read, that's where she was when that was taking place. And you can see a gap between these two circles. Let me put that gap in perspective. If Turtle Lake, just down the road here in Shoreview, if Turtle Lake was the Sea of Galilee and Turtle Lake School was Magdala, then Jerusalem would be way down in Oatana. That's a long walk. What's she doing there? What's she doing there? The Gospel of Luke provides a clue. This is another one of those first century documents that was included in our Bible. Take a look at this. The setting for this passage is still up by the Sea of Galilee. And if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to this one and then leave a bookmark there because we're going to come back to this section as, we, uh, as we're looking at Mary here. Take a look at this. This is Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It gives us a little more perspective of what she might have been doing there in Jerusalem. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 disciples were with him. And also, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Johanna, the wife of Chusa, and Herod, household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. All right, keep a bookmark here, because again, I want to show you something in just a minute. Jesus had delivered Mary from the oppression of seven demons. And Mary, along with these other women, were traveling with Jesus. And what does it say? They were providing for Jesus and his disciples out of whose means? Out of their means. I can't overstate how groundbreaking all of this is in an age when most people barely made enough to survive in an age when women didn't have the same rights and protections that they do now. Mary was apparently so successful that she was part of this little venture capitalist group that was all in on the Jesus movement. As Jesus went through cities and villages, these women went with him. And they experienced things that were beyond anything that they had experienced in other groups that they were a part of. They heard teaching that the world had never heard before. They saw Jesus feed 5,000 people. They saw Jesus cleansing people with leprosy. They saw Jesus have compassion for a woman that the doctors couldn't cure. They saw Jesus raise up Jairus' daughter. They saw Jesus call out people in positions of power. And when they saw Jesus affirming another woman named Mary who sat at Jesus' feet, which was the position of a disciple, they had to have been going... Now, let me show you something I never noticed before, and it comes right not far after that section we just read. If you flip ahead just a little bit, flip to verses 19 through 20 of the same chapter, Luke chapter 8, you're going to see some words that, if you've been with me here from the beginning, are going to sound pretty familiar. So, apparently, at least the way Luke has it grouped together here, this comes after what we read about these women being with Jesus, following him. Then Jesus' mother 
and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother, your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But Jesus answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And when you put this verse with the other verse, Mary Magdalene heard, my mother, my brother, my sisters. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? My sisters. This man who is clearly Lord. This man who was my Savior. He delivered me from seven demons. He calls me his sister. He welcomed me into his family. And on the night of his betrayal, Jesus said these words that I've heard repeated at every Memorial Day service I've ever been to. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And Mary was there when Jesus laid down his life for us. Mary was also there when Jesus rose with the promise that all of us who place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, will one day come forth from that grave as well. And when we wake, we're going to wake in a new world where all is as it should be. This, my friends, is what we're welcoming people into. This is what's at stake. This is why this matters. Why did Christians shift their meeting day to Sunday from Saturday? To remind us that the death of our Lord and Savior was not in vain. What better way to honor the legacy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on this Memorial Day weekend than invite everyone gathered here to either receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for the first time or to recommit to honoring him in that way again. So I'd like to lead us in that prayer as the worship band comes forward and closes us and seals this moment with the song. Father, I want to begin by leading us, those of us who've knelt our heads and our hearts, bowed our heads and our hearts before you before. And we've said to you, Father, from this day forward, I receive Jesus as my Lord. I'll follow his example. I'll walk in his ways. Where he says go, I'll go. What he says do, I'll do. And we've turned to you as our Savior, knowing that we're going to fall short of that. We're going to violate those good and perfect principles. We're going to miss that target. And having the humble, the humble realization and the humble acceptance that it's by your grace and what you did for us that we're saved. Father, I want to pray for those of us who've done that before, that we, as your people, as Emmanuel Covenant Church, that we corporately would once again come to you and say, Father, we receive you as our Lord. We receive you as our Savior once again, fresh and new this day. We commit to your ways. We commit to your wills. Help us, Father, because we are going to fall short. But help us day by day, step by step, become a church that honors you and proclaims not just with our words, but with our deeds, that you are our Lord and Savior. And Father, we pray for those who've yet to
do that. We pray again that you would help us to set the example, that we would have that listening ear, that we'd move beyond two-page Christianity so that we could articulate clearly who you are and what you've done, and that they could more than just hear it, they could see it in us. We pray that through your Holy Spirit, through your example working through us, that one day they would be able to come to you and receive you as Lord and Savior too. This we pray in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.